0: It's very nice to be here for the weekend, and it's already been a blessing to my heart last evening's message and this morning's, and we're thankful just for the privilege of being together. We're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 4. A familiar set of verses and only to lift one thought out of it before we turn back to the old testament so other than to make the point we won't be attempting to unpack these verses in this session so first timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 let no man despise thy youth but be thou an example of the believers to the believers in word that's in your speech in conversation in your behavior and conduct in charity in spirit in faith in purity till I come Paul writes to Timothy give attendance to reading to exhortation to doctrine neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy with a laying on of the hands of the presbytery meditate upon these things give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee, or you will be preserved from the dangers of false teachers. And as a leader, those who follow you, that's basically the message Paul has given to Timothy. As a leader... Those who are watching you, listening to you, following you, they too will be rescued from the dangers of false doctrine. So, just for a few minutes this morning, I want to think a little bit about leadership and building leadership capacity and how we can harness a potential, how I can develop Deep in my character, how we can build a reputation, and how wonderful it would be if this conference was instrumental in some way of sort of unleashing some of the power and the potential that's in this auditorium this weekend. I know it's difficult just to come from school, university, from the office and just be bombarded with messages from the pulpit. Our headspace have, have been thinking about these things for a period of time. And so we're coming up here and we're expecting you to follow our train of thought. And so we're going to go back to Nehemiah. We can all relate to the wildernesses, wilderness experiences of life, but you may not have read Nehemiah recently and it may take you a few minutes to get into the subject of Nehemiah and the leadership that he displayed at very critical, in very critical days. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read a few verses to get settled into the story. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the palace, that and I, one of my brothers, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, so this is Nehemiah talking. He had asked the question, how are things going in Jerusalem? How are my relatives, and how are my... People doing. And they said unto me. The remnant that are left of the captivity. There in the province. Are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. And the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass. When I heard these words. This is what Nehemiah is saying. When I heard this report. That I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted. And I prayed before the God of heaven. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible or awesome God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments. And he's praying. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, not just one of those one-time prayers, day and night, fasting, weeping, mourning, praying for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now, Nehemiah had never been in Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He was probably born right there in modern-day Iran. But this is where his heart is. He has read what we would call the Bible. He's familiar with these messages. And he knows the history. And his heart is very burdened. And he's identifying with the failure of his people. He's saying, we have sinned. I have sinned. He's including himself in it. The remorse and the regret and the repentance required. We have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. have not kept the commandments which thou uh, commandest thy servant Moses. Verse 8, remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest, thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments. So here he is up in the palace in Tzushan and Iran, and he knows his Bible. He's quoting these verses in prayer. Verse ten: Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech Thee, let thou thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, plural, who desire to fear thy name, or who delight in revering your name. What is he saying? This is my delight. Oh, my job is a great job. But my real delight is I revere your name and the things of eternal significance and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him or grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Who's this man? The world's ruling monarch. King. King. Artaxerxes. And he says, For I was the king's cupbearer. And we'll stop reading there, but I want to talk about the harnessing of the potential. The auditorium is partially filled with uh, men and women, older folks and young folk. And you want to live your life for eternal significance. That's our collective desire. There's no one who wants to be insignificant. Eternally, we, we want to do things that have an impact not only in this life, but things that will be pleasing to God and have any something that's of eternal significance. If we went around and pulled the entire room, every true, genuine child of God, regardless of whether you're in the depths of despair, in the, in the middle of a wilderness, it's the desire. This is the way I would love. This is the way I intend to live my life. To invest in things that are eternally significant. The potential in this room, I was thinking of it driving down through northern New Brunswick and then Maine. And, and I was thinking, if every one of us were living... To our full capacity and potential, how good would that be? It would be amazing. Can you imagine the fruitfulness in our lives? Can you imagine the pleasure and the glory that we would bring to our Lord Jesus Christ and to our great God? Can you imagine the transformation in our lives and the ripple effect? Of our lives, sometimes we wonder, are we affecting anybody? Does anybody even know that I'm a Christian? If we were living our lives and the potential was harnessed and then unleashed, imagine. You ever stop and think about it? When you're praying, Lord, if I could only live the way you would like me to live, My life would be different, wouldn't it? Just harnessing that potential. I looked it up before I came down, but the state's, New Jersey's largest um, solar farm is just about an hour away in Belvedere. And it's about 60 acres, 62,000 plus solar panels. And what is it doing? What are all those panels doing, that solar farm? What's it doing? It's capturing and harnessing the energy from the sun and converting it into something the world needs, usable electric power. Unharnessed? Think of the potential that would be lost if there wasn't that big 60-acre solar farm down in Belvedere. Unharnessed? Here's the potential that would be lost the co2 emissions would remain at 17.4 metric tons that's what it would be that's the potential that would be lost if that power wasn't harnessed and used for other profitable purposes we are we just am i looking i have actually a pretty good view of the audience up here Am I just looking at people who are handsome and beautiful and good-looking and well-dressed, decent personalities, probably a robust cerebral capacity, get the jobs, go through the interviews, you'll make a modest living, perhaps a little bit more than modest. You'll be a nice neighbor, but is that all we represent? Is that all a potential? people who are going to live maybe 70 or 80 years, and there's some that will live a little longer than 80 here this this morning. But a little bit of sun, a little bit of fun, nice trips, relaxing hobbies, and then go out to eternity. Is that what this room represents? Or did God save me for a purpose and want to Harness that potential and use it for his glory. Some of you perhaps have visited Niagara Falls. Is it just simply a tourist attraction? Now that in itself is great. It's an economic... um, Every year it's great for the economy, the American economy and the Canadian economy. Um, it's, um, but those 3.3 million liters that are rushing down the falls every second, is it just a pretty thing for tourists and or honeymooners to come and look at? I know it brings in about $2 billion a year in tourism money, in Niagara Falls, but it's all of that, but much, much more. Five million kilowatts of power. Uh, don't bother with it. Just let it be a pretty beautiful thing. But what about the energy that we need? So that's what I want you to think about. Nehemiah, he steps onto the stage about, I don't know, 500 years before Christ. If you look it up, he was probably sort of a, a contemporary, of the founder of Buddhism And Aristotle and Plato and Pythagoras, yeah, they lived around their same vintage of celebrities. You didn't think that Nehemiah, yeah, this is not just an isolated Bible story. This is concurrent, this is a part of world history. In fact, if you dig deep enough, maybe, you will find that the earliest days of London, England, started around the time of Nehemiah. And he steps onto the stage. We know very little about his childhood, his teenage years. We know about other characters, a little bit more about them, like Ezra came from good stock, from the priestly family of Aaron, Zerubbabel. He led the the rebuilding of the second temple in Jerusalem. He came from the family line of the great King David. But you say, but I don't come from blue chip stock. I don't have that in my gene. That's not in, when I did Ancestry.com, I didn't find that I belonged to any significant people. Well, we know very little about Nehemiah. All we know that is he was a Jew, born in exile in Persia, modern-day Iran. His father was Hakaliah, called his son God or Jehovah who comforts. And he had at least one other sibling, Hannah and I. But that's about it. Who would have thought that from such a humble beginning, insignificant beginnings, that he could become a significant, outstanding leader in the Bible? Leadership. You probably don't aspire to be a leader in a big position. That's actually good. The people who make it and accomplish much are not concerned about positions, recognition. They are driven by something far deeper than that. Those whom God can use are those who have gotten over themselves. You know what I mean by that? They've faced their own brokenness, their own weakness. And they're nothing apart from what Christ can do with them. Those are the ones that God can use. But forget about a position. Every single Christian here is leading someone today. Or you say, no, but I'm a follower. But did you ever think that somebody's looking at your life? Your life? So in your own sphere of influence, you are a leader. It may be a friend who's looking to you. It may be in your family. It may be at work. It may be at college. It may be in the assembly. We all have our spheres of influence. And the choices that you are making are being watched by others. You can influence others for good. You can be a leader that way. What do you think you call it if you're influencing others for bad? You're not really called a leader. I think a ringleader has a sort of a negative connotation, pejorative term. So we all have our unique sphere of influence. There have been a lot of books written about Nehemiah's leadership skills uh, quite a few years ago. I'm not saying this. I'm not just trying to uh, recognize Sandy Higgins in the audience, but uh, A few years ago, I was reading through Nehemiah, and I had just left my job uh, in in healthcare, (laughs) and I was so pumped when I was reading through Nehemiah, I thought, wow, has anyone else, I could put on a course on leadership skills from the book of Nehemiah, and I was was so gung-ho, and uh, somehow I was in communications with Brother Higgins, and uh, just uh, talking about the leadership of Nehemiah and thinking this is this is a great topic. I just discovered it. So he sends me this nice long outline, all the leadership lessons. Oh, <laughs> you discovered it long before. And others have. There are other books written about leadership skills, not just spiritual leadership skills in an assembly environment. Leadership skills, if you're in the corporate world and you're trying to make ends meet, there are beautiful leadership skills that you can extract from the lessons from Nehemiah. His vision, his plan, how he rallied the people, how he worked with the people. He was truthful. He could be trusted. He was an excellent communicator. He knew how to listen. He resolved problems. He dealt with issues. He saw his agenda move forward until his goals were achieved. All of that in this little book of Nehemiah. So let me ask you, what are you going to do with your life? Is it your humble desire to be an example to an example of the believers? As we read in First Timothy. In word, conversation, charity. Would you like to give yourself wholly to them? One rendering of First Timothy 4 says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. But just back to Nehemiah. Things were in a very sad state of affairs in Jerusalem. If you step back historically, the glory days of King David were over. The glory days of Solomon over. Israel had strayed far, far from God. The nation had split up. And God was using using pagan empires to punish the Jews for their sins. We won't go into all those details. The Babylonian Empire and now the Persian Empire. And some Jewish captives were released and they returned to their home. Zerubbabel comes onto the stage and rebuilding the temple. A century later, Ezra, contemporary of Nehemiah's heir, he goes to Jerusalem to rebuild. But the sad state of things spiritually just gripped Ezra's heart. And the walls of protection, they weren't his focus. It was rebuilding them spiritually was Ezra's focus. Bringing them to the Lord. Seeking restoration. The walls and the gates had all been broken down. And that's where we started reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. And he is a cupbearer before King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was in the palace every day before the king's throne at his table. He was a trusted cupbearer. Like, that was no small job. You say, oh, what a menial task. Cupbearer? Man, like, anybody could do that. No. You would have to prove yourself. I mean, here is someone of Jewish descent living in Iran and all these other. Persian, Iranians wanting the same job. How did this Nehemiah get the job? They obviously recognized potential. He was a man of His Word. He could be trusted. He had a solid reputation. And now he is a cupbearer. I mean, you have to be trusted because someone could poison the king. Whoever brings the wine cup to the king, if he was of dubious character, could be the last couple of hours for the king. So he was the cupbearer. As you read this uplifting book of Nehemiah, how did he become God's point man in the restoration and the revival in the city of Jerusalem? So he's a cupbearer, he's commissioned the commissioned officer of Persia. He goes to Jerusalem. Then he's a foreman on the rebuilding project. He's a governor of Jerusalem. He's a great biblical, a great historical figure. Where did it start? Where did it start? It's in the secret chambers of Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah didn't progress just because he happened to be at the right place at the right time. No, he was the right person, at the right time, in the right place. I just want to think for a couple of minutes about how, how did he become the right person? The right person. Someone has said that character is doing the right thing because it is right to do what is right. That's what character is. How did he become the right person? you know what character is? It's what I do when no one is watching. What liberties will I take if I am confident nobody will find out? What I engage in if I think it will never be exposed? Who I am when I am anonymous? That's what character is. That's who I really am. And I'm nothing more than that in God's eyes. Christians can't see through all the foils and all the the external decorations. That's all they see. God sees my heart. That's what He's looking at. My character. The litmus test. Who am I when I'm alone? When I'm anonymous? That's my character. One of your great presidents, Abraham Lincoln, said, Rep. Reputation is the shadow. Character is the tree. How can I develop and build my character positively? Well, just go over a couple of things. Devotion. Long before Nehemiah was appointed to the coveted cupbearer's position, he had a private life. He knew his Bible. He could quote verses in prayer. He He had communion with the Lord. He knew how to pray. Prayer was a very evident thing as you read through his life. He studied God's Word. He knew the history of God's people. God's dealings with His people. He learned all of this. Sure, he probably went to the University of Babylon or the College of Shushan. I don't know where he went to, but the most important college he went to was who he was when he was alone with his God and his life of devotion and his discipline. I can resolve to be a better Christian at the Midland Prayer Conference, and I'm going to do put good things into practice. I can leave in a high and it lasts for a week. But with Nehemiah, he brought discipline into his life. It was his daily practice to walk with God, to be faithful and a person of integrity and honesty. That's how that's his character. That was who Nehemiah was. And as people as people scrutinized his life and as they jockeyed for positions and there was all kinds of politicking going around for his position, his roots, his foundation was his private life with the Lord. He was known as a man who could be trusted. His devotion, his discipline, his discernment, he could make wise choices. So... I don't know. Do you think we can work on our character? Disciplining our thought life? Think on these things Paul wrote in Philippians 4. Diligently guarding my heart. Guard your heart above all else. Proverbs 4. Can I invest more? Get up an hour earlier every morning. Put some structure into my life and allow the Spirit of God to work in my life so my character can be developed for the Lord consistently practice Christian virtues. Keep good company. It's all a part of developing the character. Building the reputation. Harness the potential. Develop the character alone. The Lord, our private lives. But building your reputation. Your reputation is who people think you are based on what they see or what they hear. It's wonderful if our reputation and our character, if they're aligned. We were talking last night about the odious odor the obnoxious odor of what many see as Christians the evangelical world where they espouse one thing but their lives are totally contradictory so wonderful and this can this is all part of all of our lives to some degree there's we all have that contradiction but with God's help at the Midland Park Conference, our desire, isn't it, to develop our character and, and to work on building that reputation. Even if our, even if our character is flawed and we make, to, we make the right choices externally, at least our reputation doesn't hinder the testimony of the Lord on the earth. That's good. But beware... If I'm not, if I'm not living an authentic life, where the inside is consistent with the outside, then it could just be a ma- It will be. Just a matter of time, that what's on the inside comes out, and we implode. And it's a frightening thought. It takes a lifetime. To build a reputation. In less than 24 hours. Less than one hour. Your reputation, my reputation can be in shambles. Completely destroyed. It is a frightening thought. Just one choice. There's a build up. But the one choice that puts us over, the edge, and our reputation is destroyed. My reputation is a tapestry of the choices and decisions that I have made through my life up to this point. No choice, no decision is inconsequential. We have credibility banks. And when it's our, once our reputation is destroyed, we have to start all over again. And it's much harder to earn the trust and build confidence back. Much harder the second time to rebuild the reputation that is lost. Paul said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and towards men. Acts 24. You see, I could do something that's legal and I think this is a challenge for Christians in business. Something could be legally and technically right before God and you could have a good conscience because you've searched out the verses, you've consulted with your lawyer and you think it's okay technically. But other people may not know the whole picture and they perceive that you have done something wrong or dishonest. And it affects your reputation in their eyes. So Paul said, I am not just concerned with what's right with God. I am concerned what looks right to men and women. That's my reputation. God sees my character. And so those are very important things. Nehemiah's personal virtues and attributes, they shine through this little book. Even his righteous anger for God's thing, I asked some young people a few years ago to look at Nehemiah and, and, talk, and think about what leadership qualities they would value in, uh, say, in, in the workplace, in an assembly. And uh, it comes like this. Number one, sort of the, this group: honesty, integrity, ethical, fearless in doing what's right. That was number one. Two, leads by example. Three, a good leader, vision, confidence, persuasive, positivity. Four, focused action, commitment, ability to bounce back, resilience, communications, and so on. As you go through this little book of Nehemiah, you can do it for yourself. You see His honesty. You see His humility. You see His integrity. You see His reliability. You see His resilience. You see His courage. You see His compassion. Credibility, His dignity. It's all there for us to study and learn from. So unleashing the power. Character. Building a reputation. But just as I finish. Unleashing the power. Nehemiah had that solid track record, had a personal history. Before coming into prominence, faithfulness, he had that history, integrity of character. And it was that personal history that moved him forward and catapulted him into positions of increasing responsibility horizontally in the kingdom. And how God used him vertically. Harness the potential. Unleash the power. How does it happen? He was a cupbearer. He had a life of integrity behind him. And now he's standing. This is Nehemiah 1. And now he's standing before the world's mightiest monarch. Just months or years before, this same monarch had issued an edict banning any further restoration of Jerusalem. It was an edict from Artaxerxes. Ezra chapter 4, read it. And now he gets word, Nehemiah gets his word from his brother Hanani, the devastating report. Where did Nehemiah get the strength? What unleashed the power? He had prayed, he had pleaded with God. He had confessed a nation's sins as if they were his own. He quoted God's promises back to him. He could have eaten the fine cuisine of, probably from the very prepared by the very best chefs in the palace. But he fasted, prayed, he wept. He took the things of God very seriously. There was nothing superficial with Nehemiah. His strength was deep. And his power was from the Lord. He had a robust prayer life. I wish I did. I struggle with that. Do you? Could you resolve in your heart with humbly before God that you want to invest more time every day? From this point forward, with God's help, to spend more time alone with God and in prayer, in communion—real prayer. Oh, I know we can pray really nice at meetings. I remember, um, yeah, I'll just tell this anyway. It was a Pensacola conference, and I was just newly commended to the work, and there was a lot of pressure. And I thought I had to pray like some of these men. And this is my debut at the Lord's Supper. I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I just want, I want you to know that you can... I, we're not talking about the big prayers at prayer meetings. And I remember what I even prayed about. I get up and I did, went through all the offerings, and I thought I sounded so scholarly. Magnificent prayer, Peter, it was. like It ruined the rest of the conference for me. I thought, what in the world were you trying to celebrate? What a mockery of prayer. No, Nehemiah was real in his prayer life. He had a robust communication with God. And if you can keep on reading, he even had an instant on-the-spot prayer when the king asked him a question, what do you want me to do? And it just seems like Nehemiah was standing there and he just for a split second, he communicated with God. That's how important his relationship with the Lord was before he said another sentence. He was going to write in front of King Artaxerxes, I'm going to pray. And then he, then he responded, unleashing the power It won't be. It's over a decade ago. Youth pastors held a national conference. And they were talking about all their youth programs. They talked about what activities worked, what youthful things were most successful in steering young people on the path of God's will. What movies, what activities, and all of those things. And this is a national conference of of youth pastors. And um, they weren't denouncing getting together to have fun. But they... Said after years of experimenting with this, the emerging consensus was the single greatest contribution we can make to a young Christian's well being. This is in, I believe it was Billy Graham's Christianity Today magazine, or one of uh, an offshoot, one of those magazines. The single biggest contribution we can make to a young Christian's well being is to teach them how to cultivate a personal and private devotional life of intimacy with Christ. That's from the youth pastors themselves with all the things that they'd engaged in. This is the one thing that will keep them on the road to honor their Lord. So, I just want to leave those thoughts with you. Unleashing that power, it comes from your personal devotion with the Lord Jesus Christ And getting serious about it. And being consistent about it. And you don't have to be from blue chip stock families. You may be the only one in your family that's saved yet. And God has designs to use you mightily for His purposes. Whether it's in a university setting, in a mechanics workshop, wherever it is. God has saved you for a purpose. And you are a leader in your sphere of influence. What kind of a leader? What kind of an example to believers and off believers are you to the world looking on? May the Lord help us to be burdened about the impact that we are having on others and humbly seek before the Lord to allow Him to work in our life And to use us, harness the potential, and unleash the power why he saved you and why he saved me.